We are a people of promise. For centuries, God prepared his people for the coming of his son, our only hope for life. At Christmas, we celebrate the fulfillment of the promise that God made, that he would give a way for us to draw near to him. Advent is what we call the season leading up to Christmas. For four weeks, it's as if we are reenacting, remembering the thousands of years God's people were watching, anticipating, and longing for the coming of God's salvation for Jesus. That's what Advent means, coming. Advent is really a time of preparation. We are preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus by remembering the longing that the Jews felt in watching and waiting for the Messiah. Thousands of years waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, hoping, watching, wondering. And one day, whispers spread like wildfire and hearts were set on fire. He's here. He's here, Emmanuel, God with us. May we remember that longing, that watching, that excitement as we light the candle of hope on this first Sunday of Advent. We have a God who came near. We have a God who came low. We have a God who took on flesh and walked on this earth with aching feet and heart and a love that gave all. In Advent, we are reminded how much we need a Savior. This month, may our church celebrate Advent because we always want to remember He has come and He is coming again. This morning we do start a five-week series uh, leading up to Christmas on the Advent. And today we're looking at the topic of hope. Um, And what I want to do to start off is just kind of look at the opposite of hope. What does it mean to be hopeless? Well, this year, watching my beloved Tennessee Vols (laughs) has produced many hopeless moments. Now, I know a number of you are... Some of you are Auburn fans, you're all excited today, and and some of you, many of you are Alabama fans, and uh, you're not very happy today, you're upset, but you're not hopeless, because somehow Alabama will still slip into the Final Four, somehow they do every year, and if not, then next year you'll be right back. But for us Vol fans, we know what it means to be hopeless, See, I'm actually an eternal optimist. My wife says I look at everything through orange lens glasses. And so no matter who we play, I always think we're going to win until this year. This year, there were many Saturdays when I got up in the morning and there was no hope. But rather just dread and knowing what was going to happen to my beloved volunteers. You know, this year was our worst year in 121 years of Tennessee football. The first time 
we'd ever lost eight games. You know, when you're hopeless, um, there, nothing really is enjoyable. I mean, it wasn't anything enjoyable about watching those games on Saturdays. Uh, it's really a feeling that lacked any kind of expectation of anything good or anything to be optimistic about. Have you ever felt hopeless? Maybe it was something much more serious than my fanship for the Vols. Maybe it was looking for a job. Maybe you're out of work and looking for a job and you apply for a job and you interview for a job and it looked like it was going to lead to something and then it just didn't work out. And one job led to another job that didn't work out and it starts to feel hopeless. Maybe it's in a relationship where no matter how hard you work in that relationship and how much you invest in that relationship, it just seems like things go from bad to worse in that relationship. Maybe it could be financially. Maybe financially you got yourself in some some trouble and you work hard to get out of that uh, trouble financially and then an unexpected bill comes up and you're just right back in the red. It's hard to feel hopeless. But you know what? I believe many people in our society are hopeless. They are. Now, they try to act like they're not hopeless. They try to act like their life has a purpose, whether it is to to work, to make a lot of money, and to have stuff. But you know what? We see in the Old Testament, we see the perfect example of that King Solomon, who had it all. He had all his women. He had everything he could possibly want. But at the end of the day, you know what he said about life? He said it's vanity. It's empty. It's hopeless. You know, I was thinking about our world today and how our world today is just so plagued with violence. Where does that come from? Where does that violence come from? Well, I think a lot of it is motivated by hopelessness. I think people are angry because they have no hope in life. And so because of that, they do things that we cannot even imagine. Could you possibly have thought 20 years ago, those of us that are old enough to think back 20 years, could you have possibly thought 20 years ago that we would take all the security precautions we do every Sunday morning to protect you at church. Could you ever imagine that 20 years ago? If somebody said that to me 20 years ago, I'd laugh like, what? Security precautions? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. According to the Center for Homicide Research, since 2006, there's been 27 church shootings. Now, just to put things in perspective, there's 378,000 congregations in America. So one in every 14,000 have seen some kind of violence. But again, to put things in perspective, you're much more likely to get shot going to the mile shopping than you are to come to church. church. So if you went out on Black Friday, you took a much greater risk in a lot of ways. But also for violence, getting shot at a mile than you would at church. That's the point, though, here is what is going on with our society? We're talking about things today that we never imagined we'd ever talk about. And sometimes I just think about what's ahead in the future? What about another 20 years? What's it going to be like? What about the world my children are going to grow up in? Do you think about those things? Because I sure do. I think about those things. Difficult, hopeless, could be a way that you describe much of our society today. 
And I want us this morning to look at another time where I believe you could use the exact same words to describe that society. The time between the last writings of the Old Testament and the first writings of the New Testament was a 400-year time frame. And during those 400 years, not one prophet heard a word from God. Not one. Now, to me, four years seems like a long time. I remember when I was a kid, I always loved the word. I got to wait four more years for this? I mean, it seemed like forever. Forty years really seems like forever. Can you imagine 400 years? 400 years of silence from God. The people heard nothing. But during those 400 years of silence, some things happened. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman Empire control of this area and the Greek culture all came in and kind of took on significance in the area that Jesus was going to be born in. None of them, we, we don't see a single one of them in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Roman Empire, and the Greek culture are significant figures when Jesus is born. The Roman Empire controlled the area and with their control, they brought all their pagan practices to Palestine. The Greek culture came in and was the dominant culture. Matter of fact, they, the Greeks were, that's what we wrote the New Testament in Greek. Because it was the dominant culture of the time. But along with that, they brought in all their practices too. Of all their worship of all their many god and goddesses. And what about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were the religious guys that were in charge at this time. They were guys that kind of really what their main focus was, was to keep the Jewish people from adopting a lot of the pagan practices of the people, of the Greek culture. But these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they learned how to use religion for their own gain. And what they did is they put harsh laws and, and harsh rules on the people and they took advantage of them. And they taught no compassion or no mercy, but rather harsh judgment on people that disobey God's laws. Interesting fact is, you know, actually, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they actually hated each other. They did. They were, no, they were not friends at all until they came together against one common enemy, Jesus Christ. But they were definitely not friends. So that is the world that God sent his son Jesus into. A dark, difficult, hopeless world that he was born on that first Christmas morning. And this morning we're going to ask ourselves this question. We're going to look at scripture to see who did Jesus bring hope to? Who did he bring hope to? And we're going to really look at three groups that Jesus brought hope to. And before we read from God's word, I want to I pray for us. God, today as we open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. God, um, we live in a difficult time, but no more difficult than the time that you were born into. And how you brought hope to the world changed the world forever. And I pray that we would see that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So who did Jesus bring hope to? The first group. And, and there is an uh, insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along with study guide. Also, it's got the, the passages that we'll use today. But the first group that Jesus brought hope to is Jesus brought hope to women. Jesus brought hope to women. Jesus did more to bring hope, honor, respect, to elevate the status of women than anyone before him or anyone even close to after Jesus. See, the first century, their attitude towards women was deplorable. They treated women terribly. Women had no rights. They were looked at as second-class citizens. The Roman law actually placed the woman under the absolute control of her husband. Do you know what absolute control means? It means absolute control. She was basically like a slave to her husband. Her, her body, her possessions, everything really belonged to her husband. He could divorce her for any cause that he saw fit. We're going to look at a passage today from John chapter 8 that illustrates really the culture's view at that time towards women and how Jesus was different. Look what it says in John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in an act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Let's stop right there for just a second to make sure we got a picture of exactly what's happening here. This woman had been caught in adultery. And for the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders, there was no need to have any kind of trial. It was time for her punishment. It was time for her to be stoned to death. And in this culture, what they would do is they would take people and, and to stone, and what they would typically do is find a low place, maybe a pit, a hole, and they would put that person in that hole. And all the men would gather around rocks. And what they would do is one after the other, they would cast rocks on that person. That's what they want to do to this woman. Cast rocks on her until either they crushed her skull or, or they damaged vital organs that caused her death or she bled to death. They were going to kill her. That's what they want to do. And who is leading the charge to do this? The religious guys. The Pharisees. It's, it's almost like Somebody here in Saudi Daisy, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna kill them. And what they do is they get all the senior pastors. They go around to all the churches and get all the religious leaders. And they're going to lead on this execution. Can you imagine that? That's the culture today. That's the culture this day. Led by the religious leaders. Do you see any compassion? <laughs> no. No compassion. And isn't it ironic that she's caught in adultery? But there's absolutely no mention of the dude she was caught with. No mention at all. Where was he at? We don't know. Because again, this society did not treat women like they treated men. So, we actually know that they're quoting from the law of Moses that said that she should be stoned. Actually, 
If you look back in the law of Moses, it said this in Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. That's actually what the law said, is that the man and the woman. And why did, why did God say this? People say, I don't understand. Why would God say that it was okay to stone somebody? God gave the Mosaic law to the, to the nation of Israel to set them apart from the rest of the world. He said, I want you to be a special people. And you got to deal with sin seriously. So this is an example of that. But it wasn't just for the woman. It says the man should have died too. But the Pharisees, what they want to do is they want to use the compassion of Jesus basically to try to trap him here. So they thought, okay, Jesus, what is it going to be? Here's this woman. She's caught in adultery. Do we obey what the law of Moses says? Or do we disobey it? And how is Jesus going to respond? Look what it says, verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The Pharisees were no match for the grace, for the love, for the wisdom of Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was happening here, that they were trying to trap him. So Jesus turns the table on them, and he asked the question, okay, anybody without a sin, go ahead, you cast the first stone. Nobody could claim to be without sin. They knew that. So they all put their stones down, and they all went away. And Jesus was left alone with a devastated woman, and he gave her something that nobody else would. He gave her grace. He gave her love. He gave her a second chance. And what we see when we look at the Gospels is we see the teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus again and again that he viewed women as equal to men. He did not view them like everybody else in that culture did, that they were second-class citizens. So this woman was given a second chance. And all women in this culture that lived in a hopeless, male-dominated culture, were given hope because of Jesus. A second group that I want to talk about this morning that Jesus brought hope to is Jesus brought hope to people that were sick or disabled. In the days of Jesus, they believed people were sick or disabled because either you or your parents had done something against God and therefore, he had brought that judgment on your life. Okay? So just, just try to think about that today in our culture. If you saw somebody that was disabled or somebody that had a disease, you look at them. And instead of having compassion on them, you look at them and say, look at that sinner. They're getting exactly what they deserved. God punishes people for disobeying them. And therefore, they've got this sickness. I mean, can you imagine that? The people that needed to be comforted most and people that needed to be loved on most were the ones that was despised in this culture. 
because of their disability or their diseases. So much that the Bible even talks about in some areas there were camps like leprosy camps where they cast all the people out of the community. Wouldn't even allow them to live in the community. They had to live out by themselves because of their diseases where their families couldn't even be with them. So again, that is the culture that Jesus came into. But he brings hope to even people that are sick and disabled. We see that in John, just one chapter over in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, the Bible says that Jesus passed by one day and he saw a guy that was blind from birth. And immediately, his disciples started asking questions. They're like, Jesus, did this man sin? Or was it his parents that sinned that caused him to be blind? I mean, they've been taught by the, the Pharisees and stuff. They, they believe this stuff too. They thought that, that's why he, the guy was blind. So they asked Jesus this question. Look what he says in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus said, Listen to me. It was neither. It wasn't this guy's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind. But rather it's so that I might be glorified through working in this man's life. So the scripture says what Jesus did is he spit on the ground and he made mud. And he took the mud and he put it on the man's eyes. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Bible says that the man went and he washed and he could see. Can you imagine this scene? Could you imagine being blind for your whole life, having no hope of ever seeing any light, being in darkness your whole life? You wash and now you can see. You can see. Amazing story. Don't you think everybody been excited? Everybody be ready to throw this huge celebration. This blind man has been healed. He can see. Well, I can tell you, not everybody was excited. Not everybody was throwing a celebration. Look what it says in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And the problem was, Jesus has healed this guy. It was on the Sabbath. And oh, if you did anything on the Sabbath to the Pharisees, oh, that was terrible. And they're like, there's no way this guy can be from God. He healed, healed you on the Sabbath. There's no way. And then they started like, are you sure you've even been blind? We don't think you've even been blind. Can you believe that? Start questioning. Look, look what it says in verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received sight until they called for the parents of the man. They said, we got to meet your parents. they got to prove that you had actually been blind. We don't believe you. So they get his parents. Now imagine this picture. If I'm this young man's parent, the first thing I want to do is I want to see my son. And I want to hug him. He can actually see my face for the first time. I mean, it should be an incredible, joyous time. Instead, both the, the young man and the parents were like put on trial by the Pharisees. And they said, is this really your son? And if it is, how is it that he can see? They're like, we know for sure this is our son. And we know for sure he's been blind by birth. But how he can see, we, would, we don't know. We can't say. The Bible actually says some of what they said, they actually later said, hey, he's of age, ask him. They were afraid of what the Pharisees were going to do to them if they said Jesus healed him. 
So they're like, you know, he's of age. Ask him. Ask him what happened. But the whole time I'm thinking, this time of celebration it should have been. Instead, was a time of interrogation. So the Bible says for a second time, in verse 24, for a second time they called the man who had been born blind. And they start to interrogate him. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. Look what he says in verse 25. I love this, of chapter 9. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. He says, I, I don't know anything about this guy, but this is what I know. I had no hope of sin. And now I can see. Now I can see. Well, I can tell you, they didn't go over too well with the Pharisees. They didn't like that much. We look on down to verse 34. Look what it says. It says, they answered him, you, you are born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. What they mean by cast him out? They cast him out of society. I mean, he was no longer allowed to be, to come to the temple to offer sacrifices to God, which the people did. He was no longer allowed to do that. He was no longer to be around the villages. He was cast out like the lepers were cast out. The religious leaders, man, they had no mercy. They had no hope. No compassion is what they shared. But Jesus brought mercy. He brought hope. And he changed lives. He did. For the sick, for disabled, for women. Jesus brought sight to the blind. But listen to me. As we get to the third and final group. Jesus brought sight not just to the physical blind. But Jesus brings sight to the spiritually blind. And that's the third thing. The third group is Jesus brings hope to sinners. Jesus brings hope to sinners. The Bible teaches this, that sin has separated us from God. We know that, Romans 3, 23. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago. That all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. Sin has, has separated us from God and we're all in a hopeless condition. But thankfully, the gospel doesn't end there. For Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, you could say we're still hopeless. Christ died for us. Now, I love this verse in Romans 5. It's almost like the John 3, 16 of Paul's writings. Paul's like, understand this, while you were still a sinner, you're still ungodly to, to God. He didn't die for you because he thought, oh man, look how attractive, look how great they are. No, that's not why he died for you. He died, he showed his love when he died really for his enemies. That's what we were. We were God's enemies. That's when he died for us. And he sacrificed his life, not just his time, not just his energy, not just his convenience. He sacrificed everything for people that did not deserve anything. That being you and me. To give us hope. To give us hope of forgiveness. To reconcile us to the Father. That's what Jesus' death did. 
And listen to me, it does not matter how deep into sin you are. You might be like, Mickey, you don't know my life. You don't know all I've been into. Listen to me. The grace of God is greater than your sin. It's greater than your sin. I don't care what you've been into. There's hope through Jesus Christ. Sinners that are totally undeserving can have hope because of his death and be restored to God. It's not by you doing a bunch of good stuff that you earn God's favor. No, you can never do enough. Never. But instead, it's by the work that Jesus did in your place by his death on the cross. So let me ask you a question. Do you know the hope that only comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that hope? Have you repented of your sins and asked Jesus to forgive you and become the king of your life? You may be here today and if you're truly honest, you might say, no, I don't have that hope. I know I don't. <clears throat> I would say to you today, Jesus is greater than anything this world offers. And come and surrender your life to him. And he'll change your life forever. But I would say also to you that are here, you might say, yes, I've done that. I surrender my life to Jesus. I know that hope you're talking about because it has changed my life. Then I want to offer you a Advent season challenge. A little Advent season challenge that I would like to ask you to think about and I really like to ask you to do. I'd like for you to think of that one person in your life that you know they don't know Jesus. You know they don't. It may be somebody in your family. It may be somebody you work with. It may be a neighbor. It may be somebody our students go to school with. It's somebody, I'm just going to ask God to lay that one person on your heart that you'll think about that person. They have no hope. They have no hope of eternity with God in their current condition. They're, they're separated from God because of their sin. And they've never surrendered life to Jesus. I want to ask you, would you take this holiday season and go to that one person and you might say, well, I don't know what I would even say to them. Would you say this? Would you share with them what Jesus has done in your life? Would you say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the Bible verses, but I'm going to tell you what. I gave my life to Jesus. Man, he has brought hope to my life and he's changed my life. And just share with them the difference that Jesus can make in your life. Would you do that? Would you do that with that one person that desperately needs to hear the gospel message. Would you share how Jesus changed your life? And then pray that God would do the same in their life. Would you do that today? Would you do that this holiday season? That's my challenge to you. In closing, could you imagine the difference we can make in our community here in Saudi Daisy in the Hickson area that we could make if everyone here lived with their eyes focused on the hope of Jesus. You know what? When I focus on the hope of Jesus, all my problems don't seem so big. You know, it's easy for us to, to get down in the dumps, complaining and all that stuff. I tell you what, when you look and your eyes are fixed on Jesus, that's hard to do. 
because we have hope through him. He has changed our life. And the world would see the difference if we all would focus on Jesus.